All right, open in your Bibles tonight to the book of Amos, chapter number 3. Amos, chapter number 3 tonight. I have thoroughly enjoyed preaching through the book of Amos on these Sunday nights. I hope that the Lord has stirred your heart and used it in your heart and life uh, in the same degree that He has mine. If He's done in your heart uh, through it what He's done in my heart through it, I think we would both agree with each other. It's not been in vain. And um, I'm just thankful for the Word of God tonight. Amen? Aren't you thankful for the Word of God tonight? What a blessing it is. You know, God knows exactly what we need. The Bible is a supernatural book. There's no other explanation for the fact that you could take a book that is uh, in some portions, you know, thousands and thousands of years old. Depends on what portion, of course, that you're that you're talking about. But the portion that we are reading right now, something about 3,500 years old, and uh, and read it, and and the life of it jumps straight off the page and speak to your heart and my heart and be able to deal with us and stir us. It has to be supernatural. What a blessing that is that God loves us enough to give us a book. Amen. Didn't leave us sitting here wondering who He is and wondering what He thinks. Didn't leave us here trying to throw sticks on the ground and read signs into them or stare up at the heavens and try to uh, worship the stars and understand who He is. God loves us enough that He gave us a book. He gave us His Word. He spoke to us. And uh, heaven help us to always take it as a serious matter, His Word. Uh, not necessarily as a sorrowful thing. There are sorrowful portions in the Word of God, but it's always a serious thing when we approach the Word of God. What a blessing that is. God must love you and I an awful lot to do something like that. Turn with me. Amos chapter number 3 tonight. We spent the last, oh, four weeks, I suppose, uh, moving through the first two chapters of the book of Amos. And tonight we're going to begin in chapter number 3, and we will uh, the message tonight will carry us through the majority of, uh, of chapter number 3. Uh, but I want us to consider now some key questions that we find in this portion of Scripture and apply them not only to Israel as it is historically, scripturally, contextually, but to our life as well. Amos chapter number 3. And let's begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken, spoken against you, O children of Israel, saying the whole against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he have taken nothing? Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but He revealeth His secret unto His servants the prophets." The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? Publish in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria and behold the great tumults in the midst thereof and the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee and thy palaces 
shall be spoiled. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing it is to be gathered together with your people. We don't say that as a matter of formality. Lord, we don't say that as a matter of ceremonial invocation. But Lord, from an earnest heart, it's good to be in your house this evening. Pray that each and every heart would be stirred tonight. We know that there's power in your word. We know that, Lord, when your word is wielded by your spirit, that you are not straightened, that you are not limited, that your arm is not shortened. Father, you're able to speak to every heart and you're able to deal with our particular circumstances in life and you're able, Father, to draw us closer unto thee. And I just pray that you'd have liberty this evening. Pray that each and every heart would be open and surrendered unto you, that no one would stand as an obstacle to the ministration of your spirit, but Lord, that we would all just lay ourselves before you, uh, spiritually speaking, and say, Lord, here am I, deal with me, speak with me, uh, thy servant heareth. And Father, if we'll come tonight, I'm convinced that that will be uh, good, good soil for you to till upon and good uh, ground for you to grow upon your work and your word. And Father, we'll be sure to thank you if that's accomplished. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have preached through these first two chapters of the book of Amos, we have seen the prophet Amos uh, sort of take a shotgun approach, a scattergun approach concerning the judgment of God and the surrounding nations around the land of Israel. I'd remind you that when this prophet is prophesying, the uh, nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. There is, of course, the northern kingdom of ten tribes and the southern kingdom comprised of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And each of the prophets, uh, minor prophets, typically had a ministry to one of these kingdoms or the other. Now, there are some exceptions. Jonah, of course, and Nahum were both prophets to the Ninevites. And then uh, there were the repatriated uh, prophets, the prophets after the uh, exile and the captivity. Uh, there Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. But the rest of the minor prophets, they were either prophesying to Judah or prophesying to Israel. Can I tell you that as you study the Word of God, and the minor prophets in particular, one of your first questions you ought to ask is, who are they prophesying to? If you don't know who the intended recipient is, it's going to be hard to make heads or tails out of what's being said. So he is prophesying, Amos, though he is a man from the southern kingdom, he is from the wilderness of Tekoa, which was a vast wilderness uh, between the southern end of Judah and the Red Sea. He is what we might call a country bumpkin. He is a, he is a rustic. He is a man that has grown up toiling in the fields. He describes himself as a, as a herdsman, as a follower of sheep, and as a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And that uh, gathering sycamore fruit, only the poor would eat sycamore fruit. It was like a poor man's fig. And uh, it was to be a gatherer of sycamore fruit was about as lowly of a job as a man could have. God elevates Amos from these circumstances and, and calls him to be a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. How out of place he must have felt when he, as a rustic person, when he, as a country person, walked into the metropolitan city there in Samaria and saw all of the uh, finery and all of the decadence and all of the luxury and lavishness and saw all of the idolatry, saw all of the wickedness and sin taking place. And for, for lack of a better way to say it, God stirred this country boy's heart. He began to prophesy against and denounce the wickedness that he saw. 
He begins by denouncing the nations that surround the kingdom of Israel. He uh, begins to denounce those uh, nations that are closest to them, the nation of Tyre and the Philistines and uh, the uh, Syrians. And uh, then he moves on to some kingdoms that can claim historical uh, kinship to the nation of Israel. The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, and the Ammonites and Moabites, the descendants of Ammon uh, or Benami and, and uh, Moab, the daughters uh, or the grandsons, I guess we would say, Sons and grandsons, I'll let you read in the book of Genesis and unriddle that one, of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. And so he begins to denounce them, and then he moves on to the kingdom of Judah. Uh, I don't know if that would have uh, pleased the people of Israel or made them nervous, uh, because if he would denounce Judah, man, if he would denounce the place where the temple was, if he would denounce the place where David ruled from, if he would denounce that most precious and holy of areas of the holy land, then surely Israel would not be spared. And indeed it was not. After denouncing uh, and pronouncing judgment upon the land of Judah, there in the last portion of chapter 2, he turns his sights on the kingdom of Israel itself. He describes a tragic and heartbreaking scene in the closing verses of chapter number 2 and and condemns the wickedness and sin uh, there in Israel. Some of the sins that were prevalent were, of course, injustice. They would take advantage of those that were uh, vulnerable and those that were at a disadvantage of them. Immorality was a common practice and it is uh, it is embodied in the profane uh, temple worship that took place that involved all sorts of lurid things. And uh, idolatry, of course, was something that uh, God condemns as well and cruelty and lack of compassion. He runs down the list and condemns all these things and declares that judgment will fall upon the land of Israel. When we open chapter number 3, we find God, we might say, stating His case for judgment to the kingdom of Israel. Now, can I tell you something? God don't owe me or you an explanation for what He does. God is God. He can do as He pleases. And He doesn't have to explain Himself to you or me. But let me tell you just how holy of a God we have. Let me tell you how loving of a God we have. That He would even explain to you and I why He's punishing us for what we've done wrong. But that's exactly what He does for the kingdom of Israel. He does not owe them an explanation. He has been very clear in His Word as to what uh, He uh, requires and demands of people. I even do this with my kids. You probably, if you're raising them, do this with yours. Or if you've already raised them, you probably did it when they were in the home, they'd do something wrong, and, and you'd say, what did you do wrong? And they'd say, well, I don't know. And you'd say, you do know. <laughs> you'd say, you do know what you did wrong. Don't act like you don't know what you did wrong. You didn't want to explain yourself to them because you knew they already knew. And God didn't have to explain Himself to the children of Israel, but out of love and kindness, He does explain Himself to them. Then He poses to them a series of questions. We do the same thing, again, as parents. It's striking the similarities between parenting and our relationship with God. We'll look at a child and say, did you do something stupid? Right? We'll look at him and say, was that smart what you did? <laughs> we'll look at him and say, what did you think would happen if you did that? God poses a series of questions to His people and just simply asks them what is the logical response to each of these things. And then in the closing verses of our text, he draws all things to a conclusion and reminds them of what then would be the product of their sin. I want to take a moment or two tonight and preach on these key questions found 
in the book of Amos chapter number 3. But before we get to the questions, notice with me verses 1 and 2. This prophecy begins, or this portion of it, this declaration begins with the prophet saying this, Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. I think in these two verses, we have what I'll describe tonight as the severed covenant. In the Old Testament, God made several covenants with mankind or different sections or different individuals in mankind. There was, of course, the Adamic covenant that was made uh, immediately after the Garden of Edom. There was the Noahic covenant that instituted human government. There was the Abrahamic covenant of faith and the promised coming Messiah that was given. There was the Davidic covenant that was given uh, to David that there uh, would uh, be a king that would be raised up and that David would occupy the throne of Israel eternally. God had made a covenant at Mount Sinai with the children of Israel, uh, basically uh, subsisting of this. God sought to do it by grace, but the people had a desire to do it by works. They said, we'll do whatever you ask of us. And God set down 600 and some odd commandments and said, live in these, walk in these, abide by these, and if you do, I'll bless you. If you do, I'll prosper you. If you do, I will protect you. If you do, I will enlighten Enlarge your coasts and I will bless you and be in the midst of you. Sadly, the history of the kingdom of Israel is not one of faithfulness, but it is one of failure. For all throughout their national history, time and time and time and time again, they fell into sin, they fell into idolatry, they fell away from the God that they had made this covenant with. Now, God's getting ready to allow the northern ten tribes to be annihilated. When the Assyrian military, the Assyrian army will march into Samaria, they will not merely subjugate the children of Israel. They will annihilate them. They will take them captive. They will intermarry the Assyrians in with the Israelites. They will eradicate their culture and their identity. And never since that time have the northern ten tribes retained a strong and cohesive identity as they once did. But God, when He addresses Himself, He does not address Himself only to those northern kingdoms uh, or northern tribes, but rather He says against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. Why did He do that? He is not speaking distinctly to Judah. So why did He say, say against the whole family? The key is found in the next phrase, which I brought up from the land of Egypt. He's saying, you remember what I did when I brought you out of Egyptian darkness, when I delivered you by the blood of the Passover lamb from your bondage, when I brought you into a new place in a new land, when I marched at the head of your army, when I threw down kings and emperors in front of you, when I cleared out your enemies little by little from before you in the land of Canaan, and when I brought you in and established you in that place. Here's what God's saying. God's saying, I've kept up my end of the bargain. But sadly, the children of Israel had not kept up their end of the bargain. Let me say to you tonight, I'm glad there are something. You know what a a covenant that's not conditional is? It's a promise. 
I'm glad, and this is something that's always been funny to me about the covenant theologians. That term may not mean anything to you, and if it don't, that's fine. Don't waste your time figuring it out. But the covenant theologians talk about uh, the church being part of a New Testament covenant. I'm glad, listen, my, my Christianity is not based upon covenant, it's based upon promise. You say, what's the difference? If it was based upon covenant, I might break that covenant. But it's based upon His promise. And His promises are yea and amen. He does not break His promises. The children of Israel, however, their relationship was by covenant. There was a conditional quality to it. And God said, you keep all these things and I will protect you and I will bless you. But if you don't, He said, I will punish you and I will scatter you. God kept up His end of the bargain. By the way, He kept it up on both ends. When they was doing right, He kept up His end of the covenant. When they did wrong, He kept up His end of the covenant. He said, if you walk away from Me, I'll scatter you. And guess what He did when they walked away from Him? He scattered them. He is declaring to them the terms and the evidence and the reasons for the severing of this covenant with the northern ten tribes. He's going to cease to be their national God because they'll cease to be a nation in the future. To this day, they still don't exist in the way that they did at one time. And it's upon that foundation that he says, therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, you know what I find interesting? There is a dynamic here. There is a principle here that I think is worth noting. Did you notice the word therefore? Now, the word therefore in your Bible, it's not just there to fill up space. It's not there to meet a certain word count that God was aiming for. It's there on purpose. And when you find the word therefore, it's saying that predicated upon or based upon or building upon what is being previously stated, this truth exists. So he's saying, because of everything I just said, as a result of everything I just described, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. In other words, God is saying this, in a unique way I will deal with Israel, because in a unique way have I dealt with Israel. I jotted it down this way. Maybe you'll understand a little bit better what I mean. You know what we find when we read these two verses? Number one, we learn that responsibility flows from redemption. God says to Israel, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I've not done that for any nation throughout the history of mankind. No nation before have I stepped in and stepped between their oppressors and them and and separated them from the chains of bondage and delivered them from the darkness that they dwelt in and out of my grace and mercy and love brought them into a new place. God's saying, I redeemed you. I bought you. I paid the price for you. So you belong to me. And you should live for me. Can I tell you something? It's no idle words what the New Testament says that we are bought with a price. We belong to God. You know what that means? There's a responsibility comes from that. We owe Him our life. Why? Because we had the the sentence of death upon us until He pardoned us, until He bought us, until He delivered us. Therefore, we could say responsibility flows from redemption. We owe a debt of our soul, a life debt to our God because He redeemed us. Notice the second thing here. Not only do we learn that responsibility flows from redemption, we learn that responsibility flows from relationship. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. In other words, God is saying to Israel, we have enjoyed And we have cooperated in a relationship unique amongst any other kingdom, any other nation, any other family in the history of humanity. Therefore, God says, I expect more out of you 
than I would out of anyone else. My patience is shorter, my long-suffering in more limited supply, for we have known one another. And God is saying essentially this, the relationship that we have had produces more responsibility on your part. Can I say something? And I hope you and I both will take this as big boys and girls. You ready? We got privilege like you wouldn't believe. We've grown up in, in, in a nation that knows God, that has feared God. I understand the problems that exist in our society. I understand we are not a godly nation as once we were. But I'm saying you and I have grown up in one of the freest and one of the most godly and most Bible-based uh, societies and countries, not just in the present day, but throughout all of human history. You and I, most of us, we've grown up in the buckle of the Bible belt. We've been took to vacation Bible schools. We've been took to camps. Uh, We've been took to revivals. We've been took to singings our whole life. We've got a lot of light to to answer for. That's what I'm saying. And those of us, you and I, that may have known God for a number of years, it's uh, for for me, I've, uh, I've known the Lord. It'll be 23 years this December since I got saved. And some of y'all, you know, would say, well, it's been a lot longer than that for me. Guess what? We have a great responsibility. We're not new to this thing. And as such, God expects something out of us. Hey, you're a seasoned Christian? Then we ought to live like one. We've got some years on us in Christ. We ought to live like it. We ought to bear the burdens of those of less maturity. We ought to bear up under the battle in a greater way than new believers would. We have a great responsibility because it flows from relationship. God says, I've known you when I haven't known anybody else. There's two sides to that thing of talking about the Lord knowing us and knowing Him. There's a glorying side. Uh, There is a blessed side. There is a rejoicing side. But there is a responsibility side too. We have a great responsibility because of how the Lord has known us. And by the way, we know Him better than Israel knew Him. We know Him better than Israel knew it as a nation. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, what are you and I? We're the children of God. We're His child. His spiritual blood runs through our veins. We partook in His Spirit. His Spirit indwells us. We know Him in a greater way than they knew Him. What would that suggest that there's a greater responsibility? You know, that's why Christ looked at His disciples and said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you shall not see the kingdom of God. What was He saying? He was saying there's more expected of you. Why was more expected of them? Because they had walked hand in hand with the Son of God. They had laid blessed eyes upon God in the flesh. There was a greater responsibility for them than for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as believers, there's a greater responsibility upon us. Responsibility flows from relationship. But then you know what that produces? This is sort of implicit in the text. Responsibility flows from revelation. So what do you mean? Well, God says, therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, why would God say, therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities? Can I remind you that the prophet Habakkuk tells us that God is of purer eyes than to look upon evil? God never sees evil and chooses to dismiss it. God never sees evil and chooses to ignore it. But God always judges in justness and in holiness. You know what that means? That means God holds men accountable for the things that they are aware of. You remember the book of Acts talks about the 
times of this ignorance God winked at. doesn't mean God was ever okay with the idolatry that they practiced, but it's saying that God took into account that man lived in a certain amount of, of revelatory darkness, spiritual darkness, and God didn't judge them for what they were unaware of. And I'm thankful God doesn't judge us for what we're unaware of. But can I listen, I got news for you tonight. The reason He says, I'll punish you for all your iniquities is because they were accountable for all their iniquities. Why were they accountable for all their iniquities? Because they held the oracles of the law. They held the commandments of the law. They knew what the Word of God said. They knew what the law of God demanded. They had greater revelation than any other kingdom, than any other nation. And that also brought greater responsibility. We might say it this way, they knew better. They knew better. Later on, he says about them, they know not to do right. But the reality is they knew better. They knew what was right. They knew what was wrong. Can I tell you something? We have a lot of light to answer for. We know what's right. We know what the Word of God says. I don't know that there has ever been a more biblically educated people than exists in the New Testament church today. We have at our disposal more resources, more knowledge than the church has ever enjoyed throughout her uh, glorious history. And you know what that means? We've got a lot to answer for. You know, the New Testament way of saying it is to whom much is given, much is required. So we find in this passage that God says, based upon all this, I am severing our covenant. We might say it this way, and this I think is what he's saying in verse number 3. Notice it with me. Verse 3 begins a series of searching questions. And notice the first one. He says, can two walk together except they be agreed? Here's what God's saying with that question. He's saying, I'm not telling you why I'm severing our covenant. I'm telling you why you have severed our covenant. God's saying, I didn't walk away from you. You walked away from me. God says, I'm the same God that ever I've been. I've expected the same thing that ever I have expected. I've required the same things that ever I have required. God says, I am the Lord thy God. I change not. Why have you changed? <laughs> Can I tell you something? So oftentimes we allow the, the, the familiarity of life and we allow the uh, routine of life to rob us of the joy and freshness of our faith and our walk with the Lord. But can I tell you something? God is just as good today as He was when you got up from that altar with tears in your eyes, a fresh, uh, brand new, born again child of God. Hey, listen, God is just as good today as He was on the day of the greatest blessing you could catalog in the history of your Christian life when God showed up and rode in like a knight in shining armor into your circumstances and changed your world and turned the sun back and moved the stars and pulled up mountains and dried up rivers. When God showed up on that day and you had the song of praise upon your lips and you had the glory of God in your heart, God is just as good today as He was on that day. He's not changed. Why have we changed? God is saying... This covenant has been severed, but I've not been the one that severed it. He says, you have severed it. Here's why. Here's what that first question discusses. It's a question as to the premise of God's judgment. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Now, this, of course, is a rhetorical question. You know why it's rhetorical? Because we all know the answer to it. 
Two cannot walk together except they be agreed. We would not anticipate or expect ideologically for two people to be in agreement if there are fundamental differences in how they view the world or in how they view a particular issue or a particular topic. You see, fellowship cannot be forced or fake. It must be genuine. This is something the world gets wrong. This is why all the various coalitions the world builds that leave out the reality of spiritual things are doomed to fail. Because at the end of the day, we, listen, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we are a living spirit with a body, not a body with a living spirit. At the end of the day, we are fundamentally spiritual creatures. And for whatever else that we may be able to get along about, when that spiritual thing is not dealt with, there's not going to be the kind of fellowship that there needs to be. By the same token, one of the blessed things about the uh, church of the living God is you can look around and find people that have disagreements on all kinds of things. Uh, But at the end of the day, that don't matter. You know there's people here drink unsweet tea? I know. I mean, I ain't going to call names because I don't want to fight or anything. And and people are in a rioting mood these days, so I ain't going to call names, all right? But I'm just going to say there's people amongst you, I mean. I'm, I'm talking about here tonight that drink unsweet tea. But you know what? We can still have fellowship. Because despite how we may think from time to time, uh, whether you drink tea sweet or unsweet is not actually the deciding factor of life. It's what you do with Jesus Christ. I'm saying, and God's saying here, that fellowship is a real thing. Fellowship is not a manufactured thing. Fellowship is a manifested thing. That fellowship has to be predicated and based upon something. God said we walked together at one time. You know why? Because we were in agreement. But he said, if you walk contrary, that's what the book of Leviticus talks about, walking contrary to God and His Word. He said, if you walk contrary to me, we won't have fellowship with each other. Not because God's being contrary to us, but because we're being contrary to Him. He's the Lord God. He changes not. He's the same God ever that He's been. If there's a problem, it must be our problem. Because He's not changed. So God says, you have chosen to walk differently than me. Don't be surprised if that separates our fellowship. Can I just, I I don't even have to preach it. Can I just say that to you and me? If we walk different than what the Word of God uh, commands, why would we be surprised if that disrupts our fellowship with God? This thing, and I understand life is hard. I understand sometimes the spiritual warfare is hard. But friend, it's simple by the same token. God has told us who He is. God has told us what He wants. And if we refuse to obey, if we refuse to yield, we shouldn't be surprised when there's a problem between us. So he asks a question as to the premise of God's judgment. Now notice the second question he asks. And really this is two questions, but they they illustrate the same truth. Verse number 4, the Bible says, Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he have taken Nothing. It's no surprise that this rustic uh, farm hand, Amos, would use these sort of uh, nature-centric illustrations to convey deep spiritual truths. And you can imagine Amos watching over the flock on that vast stretch of wilderness that he called home and hearing out the cry of, uh, of a mountain lion or hearing a wild beast of prey crying out and knowing what a, that signifies as an experienced woodsman, as an experienced outdoor he would have known what that cry meant. He would have known that the stalking was done, the hunting was over, and the lion had taken its prey. Because a lion won't cry out when it's stalking. 
won't cry out when it's hunting. Only will it roar once it has its prey in its grasp and secured unto itself. And here's what he does. He takes that natural truth and he lays it alongside a spiritual truth. And he essentially says this to the children of Israel. God is voicing his displeasure. He is roaring aloud. Just like the lion does not roar in vanity or in idleness, God's warnings are not vain and they are not idle. In other words, we might express it this way, that God doesn't speak for no reason and His words are not uh, empty and His uh, warnings are not idle. If He's speaking to the children of Israel in that day, it's because He intends to act. He intends to move. Can I say in your life and mine, one of the great disservices that we can do to ourselves spiritually is to dismiss the voice of God. I'm reminded of, <coughs> of uh, the Herod in the uh, New Testament uh, and the beheading of John the Baptist. You know, the Bible tells us that there was a time when Herod uh, it received gladly the testimony of John and warmly entreated John the Baptist as a friend. And he understood the people took him to be a prophet. But when John the Baptist turned his divine attention towards the sins of Herod and began to denounce them, Herod out of embarrassment and Herod out of anger uh, and Herod out of foolishness allowed him himself to be ensnared in a situation where it would result in the beheading of John the Baptist, in the taking of John the Baptist's life. And the Bible tells us that even after John was dead, whenever Herod heard of Jesus, that he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. Herod, uh, that Herod, by the way, you know how he ended his life. Uh, he finally turned his heart so hard against God that he vaunted and glorified himself against the God of heaven. And God destroyed him, smote him, caused him to be eaten of worms from the inside out. You say, preacher, what does all that have to do with? Here's a man that had the voice of God, John the Baptist. Here's a man that heard the voice of God, the prophecies of John. Here's a man that heard the preaching of the truth of the Word of God. And then all of a sudden, it ran afoul of his sin or his sin ran afoul of it. And what did he do? He cut off the head that had the mouth of the voice of God. And his life never recovered. I'm saying this to you tonight. Listen, when God speaks, we better listen. We better listen. When the Holy Ghost puts His divine finger that pinned down the Word of God on your heart and mind and says, this is your problem, your sin, your issue that must be dealt with. We better heed it. We better hear it. We better listen. Because the lion doesn't roar for no reason. And the lion of the truth of the Word of God in our lives does not roar for no reason. So, verse 4 has a question that relates to the promise of God's judgment. Look with me at verse 5. We have another pair of questions asked in tandem one of another that sort of convey similar truth. Verse 5, Amos says, can a, bear, can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Now, when the Bible uses the term gin there, and when the Bible talks about a snare, it's describing a net that would oftentimes be stretched across a spread of open sky, maybe from limb to limb or from tree to tree, and would be used to ensnare birds that would fly by. And Amos has in his mind this picture of a bird that has flown into one of those snares and has pulled loose its fixtures and fallen to the ground wrapped in that snare and he uses that to illustrate some basic things as to the proof of God's judgment. 
In other words, let me ask you this real simple question. How do we know when it's God's judgment? Now, I want to be careful with what I'm about to say here. I believe God chastens His children. I believe when God chastens His children, He chastens them out of love. I also don't believe that every bad thing to happen in your life or mine is a result of chastening. I think sometimes God is not is not punishing us, He is perfecting us. But I also think sometimes that line of distinction that we make can sometimes be a little too finely made. I think there I think even when He's punishing us, He's perfecting us at all times. You with me tonight? You alright tonight? It's gonna be a long sermon. Buckle in. Don't get nervous, it won't. I think here's what he's saying. You walk up on this bird and you see this bird caught in this trap and fallen to the ground. And there's two things automatically that you know instinctively. I would sort of describe them this way. He says, number one, you know there was a trap. If you see a bird caught in a trap, you know there was a trap. And if you know there was a trap, listen carefully now, you know there was someone that set the trap. A trap don't set itself. The birds didn't string that snare out across the open air. If you see that bird caught in that trap, you see, you understand someone set a trap. You know, by the same token, he says, if that trap is laying on the ground and not up in the air where it was set, that tells me that a bird must have flown into it. You can imagine a person skilled at setting these traps that might be able to identify them maybe from something from the ground that they have used to mark it and they can see from afar off whether that trap has been sprung, has been tripped or not. And they see that that trap is laying on the ground. They don't even have to get up close. They automatically know a bird must be in it. By the same token, if a person that didn't set the trap walks up and sees a bird caught into a trap, they know that someone must have set the trap. You know what all this is? All this is proof of God's judgment. Think about it as He applies it to the children of Israel. He has laid a snare for them, a trap for them, a gin for them as a people. We'll say a word about it before we close, but there, uh, there is a mighty army from the north that is even as Amos speaks, marching uh, towards the gates of Samaria that is mustering their power to throw down the kingdom of Israel. And Amos is saying, in light of this, in light of the judgment that is falling upon you, it should be no surprise that men ought to be able to look at it and see that this was God's hand. We would say it this way, that the presence of the fall is testimony of the trap. And the position of the trap is testimony of the fall. And you are left with one unmistakable conclusion. Someone wanted to ensnare this bird. In other words, he's saying you can look at the product of what has taken place and discover something about the purpose of the architect of these things. He says, judgment's getting ready to fall upon you. And recognizing and acknowledging that, you know what that ought to do? That ought to produce in you a godly uh, spirit and attitude of self-examination. Can I tell you something? When ill comes to our life, when bad things transpire in our life, we ought to have the spiritual maturity to not blame God. But we also ought to have the spiritual maturity to be willing to examine ourselves in light of. You know, people would worry, I think, and I think preachers would worry uh, in, in this sense of saying, well, I don't want somebody to think that every bad thing that happens to them is judgment of God. I don't want that either. But can I tell you something? I think the great uh, danger and the great tragedy in our day is not people ascribing things in their life to God's judgment when it wasn't God's judgment. You know what I think the greater problem is? People ignoring the judgment of God when the judgment of God takes place in their life. 
I think the greater danger is people attributing things to things like luck and misfortune. I think the greater danger is people attributing God sitting there trying to get their attention and they're treating everything as though it's just merely loving correction and chastening when God is literally pouring judgment into their life trying to get their attention. But they're too spiritual to acknowledge that they might have done something wrong. I'm saying that they're is proof of God's judgment. And that's what Amos is looking at. Your default, my default ought to be when something happens in our life. It ain't going to hurt you to have a checkup. Spiritually. It ain't going to hurt you to have a checkup. Ain't that what people tell you when it comes time for a physical? That it ain't going to hurt you to... Hey, spiritually, it ain't going to hurt you to have a checkup. It ain't going to hurt you to ask the question, Lord, is there something in my life not how it ought to be? If anything, it'll help you to ask that question. You know, the the best slash worst thing he could say is, no, son, you're all right. Just be patient. I'm working all things together for your good and for my glory. But you know what would be a great tragedy if we saying, well, you know, God's just God just loves me so much, He's perfecting me. He's just trying to make me a better Christian. And it, it dismissed and ignored and disregarded some dealing in our life regarding sin that God is trying to accomplish. I think we ought to be willing to look at ourselves and say, could there be a problem? Look at verse number 6. We have another question. As to the proper response to God's judgment. He says, shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? My mind uh, uh, immediately went back to uh, the idea of World War II, uh, Great Britain. And during the blitz and all the sirens that they had set up all over England and whenever bombers would be coming in, they wanted to notify people. Uh, they'd fire up those sirens and they'd lay on those horns. And what was that? That was, that was a signal to the people to uh, take cover and get ready because the bombs were getting ready to drop. This event, this phenomenon was not unique, of course, to Britain, but all throughout history, uh, walled cities have had someone that was a watchman, someone that had a horn to be blown, someone that had a bell to be sounded, uh, someone that would, would give the alarm were impending danger coming. And here's what Amos is saying in a city, if a person, uh, if a person blew on that horn alarming the people, the first thing they'd do is they'd protect themselves, they'd take cover, they'd try to ready themselves for the coming judgment. And now he looks around at a city and here, he's the horn, he's the bell, he's the siren, he's the voice of God, and he's crying aloud, and he's sparing not, and he's looking around at a people that are apathetic to his warning. He's saying this, if it was a physical foe, you wouldn't act this way. Why, being the God of glory, are you dismissing His warnings? Let me tell you, we ought to take seriously the warnings of God's Word. They're not idle. And then look at the last phrase in verse number 6. He says this, Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? We have a question as to the providence of God's judgment. Now, the word evil in your Bible, it can have sort of two connotations. It can have the idea of, of moral iniquity. In other words, evil like we would think of evil. Sinfulness, unrighteousness, iniquitous behavior. But then sometimes the word evil in your Bible, it just means bad. Like for instance, when Job said, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? 
And how, what was he defining? What was he describing? He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Well, you would imagine the good that he's describing is the Lord giving and the evil he's describing is the Lord taking things away. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job is talking about evil in that respect. And that's how Amos is talking about it here. He's not talking about moral iniquity, but he's talking about bad things happening. And here is a very basic fundamental truth that he is relating God is at all times in control. That does not mean God controls all things. But it does mean at all times God is in control. God doesn't make the wicked man be wicked. The wicked man chooses to be wicked. But never for one moment does the wicked man's wickedness take God by surprise, nor does it move him one millimeter from his throne. It does not threaten his authority. It does not threaten his sovereignty, his power, and his jurisdiction. He has the wherewithal and the ability to change all the circumstances of life. But because we have a God that respects our free will, because we have a God that desires to be loved and not merely demand love, He allows us to to make our own choices in life. Let us never mistake that dynamic as God not being in control. God doesn't control all things. Men choose what they wish to do, but God is never out of control for one second. In light of that, Amos says, you know, if there's bad that falls upon a city, if an army uh, marches against a walled city, if archers fling arrows over the city walls, if war machines pummel down their uh, their bulwarks, if, if uh, people torch this city and destroy it. He says, men have chosen to do that, but can you really believe that God wasn't working in that as well? Now, this has a very real application to his audience because it will not be long ere an army will be marching upon their city and will be doing... We talk about a figurative horn blowing, but there would be a literal horn blown in Samaria. We talk about a spiritual enemy, and we will before we close, but there was a very physical, very literal enemy that would march into the city of Samaria. And so he's warning them, saying, when this day comes, don't you dare look around and miss the hand of God. Listen, in the midst of our calamities in life, again, we ought to have the spiritual maturity to not blame God, but we ought to have the spiritual maturity to also not miss what God's doing. Always look hand of God. Always look the hand of God. In whatever takes place in your life, always look for the hand of God. You know that all through the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah talks about the good hand of our God upon us. You know that Ezra don't hardly at all talk about the good hand of my God. And yet both those men were ministering in the same general region and some of their ministry overlapped. Why did one man talk about the good hand of my God upon me and the other one didn't? I'll tell you why. One man was looking for the good hand of his God upon I'm saying this. If you look for the hand of God, you'll see the hand of God. That's true in the good things, and that's true in the disturbing things of life. So we find some searching questions. Now, verse number 7 presents another question to us, but it is different in character than the ones before us because it basically illustrates and summarizes what all of this leads to as regards Amos' prophecy. And I'm going to call this the sobering conclusion. So we've seen the severed covenant. God says, I've not moved, you've moved. I've not changed, you've changed. We cannot walk together, for we are not agreed. 
Then we see the searching questions. God lays before them all these questions and says, what else could it be and what else would you have done if you were a just holy God? This is the way it must be. And he's saying it should be no surprise to you when judgment falls. And then that leads him to this sobering conclusion. Notice verse 7 and 8 with me. He says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but He revealeth His secret unto His servants, the prophets. And let me say, that's an astounding verse. He's saying anything God does as regards the people of this world, as regards responsibility on their part, God will always speak it to someone with a voice And God will always make sure that person with a voice speaks to them. Saying God loves humanity enough that He will always warn them. And Amos says when God's getting ready to do something, guess what He does? He calls up a prophet. And He gives them a message and He sends them forth. Now He brings back in that imagery from earlier in verse number 4. Look in verse 8. He says, The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken... Who can but prophesy? Amos says, God has spoken. That means I must prophesy. God has spoken. Therefore, it is incumbent upon me as a prophet to declare unto you the truth of God's word and the truth of God's message. He says, now, what's your responsibility? Your responsibility is to respond appropriately to that warning that is given. You know what he's focusing on? The prophet's authority is being talked about here. He's saying, I am God's messenger, I am God's emissary, and as such you should heed and hear what I say. Now can I tell you something? Uh, Preachers are not prophets. Prophets were not preachers. I think there can be just as much danger in conflating prophets and preachers as in some denominations the idea of conflating apostles and pastors has caused. A pastor is not an apostle. The apostles were those that witnessed and saw the Lord Jesus in the flesh and they died out. You ain't an apostle and I'm not an apostle. Amen? Uh, the apostles were distinct people. They were not just offices. They were uh, ascribed to individuals uh, in a particular generation. I'm not an apostle. You're not an apostle. I'm a pastor. And I think there is a great danger, likewise, in trying to conflate the idea of a prophet and a preacher. A prophet was a national role. It was a role of, of national identity. And that's not necessarily what a preacher is. A preacher's citizenship is in heaven. Uh, his people is the people of God. His ministry is the flock of God. But I will say this. There is a similarity in this respect. Inasmuch, I, I'm not a prophet. But inasmuch as, as a preacher, we take the words of the prophet. Those words of the prophets, by the way, are the word of God. Amen. When we take the Word of God and declare it unto you and expound it unto you, there is authority. That authority is not there because of who I am. That authority is not there because of my personal experiences. That authority is not there because of the stature of my integrity. That authority is there only and solely because these are the very words of God. But don't dismiss the reality that that authority is there because it's God's Word. He describes the prophet's authority. I've always been struck. I remember hearing a preacher say this one time, and I think this is worth noting at this point in this message. He's preaching about Samuel there in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and Samuel hearing the voice of God. And Samuel would get up, and he thought it was Eli, the priest, that was speaking to him. 
And he got up and went to Eli and said, what is it, my Lord? Here, thy servant is here. And Eli said, I didn't call you, boy. Go back to bed. And he went back to bed. You know, I know the Bible's true because that's exactly what it's like putting my kids to bed. I need a glass of milk. I got to go to the bathroom. All of a sudden, man. And uh, Samuel goes and lays back down and he hears the voice again. He thinks it's Eli and he gets up. You know the story how that the third time Eli says it, it, peradventure the Lord speaketh to him and tells him to go lay back down so you hear the voice again. Don't come find me. Just say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. But you know, a preacher made a statement one time that stuck with me. He said, you know, oftentimes the voice of God sounds like the voice of our preacher. Isn't it interesting that when Samuel heard that voice, he thought it was Eli. Something in that voice sounded like Eli. Eli was not a perfect man, far from it. He was the third most wicked priest that ever uh, occupied that office, uh, topped only by his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, that had grown so wicked on his watch. Uh, Eli is a man that died in disgrace, having had the Levitical covenant ripped and divested from his family. He is a man of deep moral failure and flaws. But when Samuel heard the voice of God, it sounded like his preacher. It sounded like the man of God in his life. You say, preacher, what are you saying? I'm not saying when I speak it's God. I'm saying there are times when God speaks, He may use me or another preacher to do it. We ought to hear and seek and listen for the voice of God. doesn't mean everything I say is true, but it does mean when it's true, it's probably because it ain't me. It's the Lord speaking. It's Him working. There's authority in this word. So we see the prophet's authority. Look at verse 9. He says, publish in the palaces at Ashdod, the Philistine city, and in the palaces in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria, and behold the great tumults in the midst thereof, and the oppressed in the midst thereof. We see not only the prophet's authority, we see the public assembly. In other words, God says, I will do before all men uh, in judgment, in recompense for that which you have done in secret. You remember the New Testament tells us Christ told us that every word would be brought into account. Every idle word would be brought into judgment. And those things that are done in darkness, Christ said, would be brought into the light. Can I tell you something? If we live in a day, we have sold privacy. I'm not going to get into a big thing about it, but I believe that every generation has had a generational sin. I believe you could look back at every generation, certainly in America for the past, you know, six or eight generations, and there would be a sin that defined that generation. Or we might say a foolishness that defined, a poor decision that defined that generation. I think that's true in a political sense. I think it's true in a spiritual sense. I think one of the great tragedies of my generation is that we have sold the concept of privacy. We have destroyed it. We have annihilated it to such a degree that we don't even anticipate. Uh, the, the, the heads of, of social media companies are saying openly in Congress that there's no such thing as an expectation of privacy anymore. We say that we value privacy, but the sad thing is usually when we want that $2 off coupon, we'll agree to any terms and services, whatever it requires of us. You know, there may come a day that comes back to bite us. There may come a day when all that's weaponized against us. Can I tell you something, though? Spiritually speaking, there's not really anything done in private. Spiritually speaking, there's not really anything done in private. One day, God's going to bring it all out into the light. That's true of the good things. Thank God. There's been one or two times in my life I've done good things and nobody knew about them. And God will make sure those are known. But you know what's more startling and alarming and sobering than that? Even the bad things. 
They're going to be brought into the light. God says, I'm going to gather these nations to stand up on the mountains around Samaria. Samaria sat in a, in a valley, almost like a bowl with mountains all around. It's one of the things that made it a great place to build a capital city. It was nigh impregnable. And, and He says, I'm going to gather these Gentile nations. They're going to stand up on the mountainside and they're going to witness and view the destruction of the apple of my eye as a warning to them. If I do this to my own people, imagine what I do to the Gentile nations. He says, I'm going to do it before all men. Can I tell you something? Whenever our sins come home to us, we may find that they come home to us in a far more public way than how they were born and created. We may have done it in darkness. I, and listen, I ain't talking about the judgment seat of Christ neither. I'm, talk, I'm talking about some men's judgment goes on before them. Some men's judgment happens in this life. I'm talking about in your life and mine. It might, oh my. It might be that God brings some things into the light that we thought were forever hidden. I see that there is a public assembly. What's the pitiful assessment that God gives? Verse 10. He says, for they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Now there's a bit of a poetic turn to what God is saying. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, he just got through describing at the beginning of this chapter that His people do know better. They have been taught. They've, as a nation, known God uh, ever since the days of, of Abraham. And so they have a great responsibility. But He says, you know, as I look at them, it's like they don't even know how to do right. It's like they've forgotten what it's like to live righteous, to live morally. We live in a world so depraved today that Bible Christianity seems like radical hostility to the world we live in. For a man to say, I believe marriage is what God says it is. I believe life is what God says it is. I believe judgment is what God says it is. I believe sin is what God describes it as. I believe righteousness is what God reveals it as. It will not be long ere that could land you or me behind prison bars. And in some places in the Western world, supposed to be founded upon the Judeo-Christian pillars, that is a reality today that you can be thrown into jail for merely saying things that God's Word plainly affirms. And by the way, things that everybody agreed on 15 years ago. 15 years ago, if you said a man could just choose to be a woman, they would have locked you up. Now they'll lock you up, but for a different reason. <laughs> I'm saying this, that the world is rapidly changing. And the sad truth is, if we're not careful as, as the people of God, will allow a wicked, depraved, and broken culture to inundate us and inoculate us against truth. And we'll go right along with what they tell us to believe and what they tell us to think. It is alarming, it is alarming how predisposed society is today to being told what to believe and what to think. Some people have a total breakdown of cognitive dissonance if they are presented with facts contrary to the worldview they've been conditioned to believe. We have been so trained to believe what we're told to believe. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing different. It is in those circumstances that it could be said of a redeemed people that they know not to do right. Not that they don't have the resources and wherewithal and knowledge to do right. Not that they don't know what is right. But they behave as if their doing right is broken. And they don't know how to anymore. God says there's only one thing left for my people, and that is judgment. We find this word therefore again. Based upon all this, God says, therefore, thus saith the Lord God, 
an adversary there shall be even round about the land. He shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. We see the prophet's authority in verses 7 and 8. In verse 9, we see the public assembly described. In verse 10, the pitiful assessment they know not to do right. And this whole uh, portion of Scripture, this text that we have read tonight, it closes out with the powerful agent of God's judgment and of God's wrath. In their day, it was the rising empire of Assyria. And sure enough, just as God said it would happen, it happened. The Assyrians marched in, destroyed the northern ten tribes, carried them away, and they were wiped from the pages of history. And only when God gathers them back in, only when God restores the nation, will they be a people once again. Can I tell you something? You're a Bible student. I know you are. I don't know everybody's personal study habits in this room, but I know by and large the people of Walridge Baptist Church, they love their Bible and they read it. And a lot of you have been raised in church and you've spent years and decades in church. And I'm not telling you anything new when I say that America's not found anywhere in Bible prophecy. That's not anything surprising to you or me. If you can find it beyond dispute, then I'd change my mind about that. But I've never found anybody that could point to and show me directly, this is, this is America as a strong, sovereign nation in the end times. Today we are a strong, sovereign nation to some greater or lesser degree. We can argue about the degrees some other time. But something's going to have to happen. Something's going to have to change. Right now, to look on the world scene, the, the UN and the EU are growing weaker. Right now, to look on the world scene, it wouldn't, it wouldn't appear we're moving swiftly towards globalism, but it would seem that that globalist infrastructure is fracturing. But there's going to come a man along that's going to unite it all. And he's going to bring everybody together under one banner, under one flag, under one, one theology, under one ideology and philosophy. And I'm just saying this, that America, she's not there to see it, or if she is there, she's been so weakened, so weakened, that she is of no consequence to be spoken of distinctly. You say, well, preacher, that's scary and everything, and it is scary, and it should scare us. But here's what we ought to do with it. You know what that tells me? There's probably some judgment coming towards our nation. We should be praying for our nation. We should be praying for our church. You know where it starts? It starts by looking at our own lives and saying, Lord, what in my life needs to be changed? What in my life have you, are you dealing with me about? You know what could have turned the tide for the nation of Israel? If when they heard the trumpet, they had responded in fear. If when they heard the lion roar, they had not scoffed and laughed at it. If when they saw the snare, the net out in front of them, they had stopped and turned an about face and changed the direction that they were going. If each individual Israelite had repented and done right by God in their own life, it could have changed things. You know what that means? That means it starts with you and I looking at our life and saying, Lord, what in my life needs to be addressed, needs to be dealt with? Don't dismiss the voice of God. His warnings are not idle. He's spoken in love. He's spoken in long-sufferingness. One day He'll he'll speak in punishment. One day He'll speak in judgment. One day He'll speak in wrath. Oh, but listen, you better heed while the voice is soft and while the tone is gentle. You better heed while it's a still small voice because there's coming a day when the lion will roar 
You better heed right now while you can. Let's bow together tonight. As a musician comes to the piano to play, the altar is open. I just, I just invite you to respond to the Lord tonight. If He spoke to you about something, if He dealt with you about something, find a place down here. Deal with Him tonight. The altar is open. Father, bless this invitation. May your people get help tonight from your Spirit, from your Word, from their obedience unto you. We'll be sure to give you the glory. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Jesus' name with our heads bowed, our eyes closed.